0: It was a struggle because he did not support it. Mm -hmm. And that was the biggest decision I made without my father's support at that point in my life, which was extremely difficult. Um, But I just knew, I knew it. I was like, this is not... For me, for the rest of my life, this is, I have more growth potential and it's not gonna happen here. And I listened to myself and I made that decision. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Defense of Arrest. I'm your host Megan, and today I'm joined by Brittany Lannon. Uh, and Brittany is a vice president of underwriting at Sampo International. Um, and you know she's here to talk about like the exciting world of underwriting and how she kind of got into that role. Uh, she started out, you know, in more of an accounting finance role and kind of weaved her way up. And she's super passionate about it. And you know, and I talked to her on the phone. Her and I talked for like almost an hour, just chatting about all things claims and life, and you know. So I'm excited to have her on. So with that, let's bring her in. Good afternoon, I guess it's morning. A morning for you, Brittany. Welcome. Yeah, to the it is. Arrest.
0: Thank you. Thank you. you.
1: If I remember correctly, you are in San Francisco.
0: I'm in San Francisco. Correct.
1: Oh, how lovely. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it is lovely. It's been it's been great. Um, it's very windy here today, but. It's been uh, pretty lovely that it's mid-February and you know blue skies and warm weather.
1: So before we really jump in, I'm actually curious did you did you grow up out in California or are you a transplant? I didn't.
0: I'm a transplant. So I grew up in New York. Um, grew up in Long Beach on Long Island, and then went to school upstate New York at Santa College. And then right after college, moved into Manhattan. I was in Manhattan for a little over 10 years. And then the pandemic hit and I chose to be one of the only people moving into San Francisco. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just really like going from Manhattan, an expensive city to another expensive city. But um, yeah, it was a kind of, let's just, we're all working remote. Let me just check out a new city. And I came out here, got a sublet and really just fell in love with it. So I'm still out here.
1: Well, hopefully you got, like, you were able to take advantage of some, like, I remember at the time, like, weren't rents, like, dropping a little yep. bit for, mm-hmm. I guess, for San Francisco standards, so hopefully yeah. you can reap some of that benefit. <laughs> yeah,
0: I absolutely was able to, um, thankfully. So, you know, and the other thing is, is people always talk about rent being comparable Manhattan versus San Francisco, but in San Francisco, you do get a lot more space, so. Yeah you know, that's the one big thing that I noticed, like I had closets and an <laughs> actual, you know, bedroom with a door. <laughs> so definitely different from that perspective.
1: You didn't have to like wash your dishes from your bed.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> like, exactly. Just lean over, you know, get some dishes done, fall asleep.
1: <laughs> you know, that's like something I never truly appreciated. Like when I was looking when I graduated college, I remember like, looking, at like interviewing for jobs in New York and really being completely blind to the cost of things and yeah. like, and just being young and stupid and being like, oh, I could totally live in New York on like this measly little salary. <laughs> like, I don't know where I thought I was living.
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah. I will. I actually moved into Manhattan in 2009. So I also was able to take advantage of the rents at that point too. because yeah, yeah, at that point, you know, rents were dirt cheap. So I I did pretty well from a rent perspective, even though I was living in expensive cities.
1: Well, hopefully you have like a little bit of a rent control situation too, that it just didn't jump up as things, you know, improved.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not too bad. I can't complain. Really can't.
1: Well, you know, well, I, I, you know, you and I talked, I guess it was like a while ago. I think we talked before the holidays, yep. um, but I'm so happy to have you because we had such a, like a, a nice, fun conversation when we chatted. And this is your, I know this is your first podcast. You're a little nervous, spoiler alert, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, something I ask of everyone who comes on here and we have people who are in claims, we have attorneys um, and all different walks of careers on here. Um, and how was it that you fell into, you know, a, the claims umbrella of
0: careers? So basically I can just walk you back to kind of how I got started in corporate America. Um, I was a finance major and my dad was always, he always instilled a very good work ethic in me. I basically got a job as soon as I had working papers when I was 14. And he always just had me working, you know, he would bring me to bring your daughter to work day, all of that. So I always kind of was in the corporate America world or realm or or like knew that that was where I would be. Um, And so when I was in college, he had gotten me an internship um, because most people that are in insurance generally, and it might not be right now, but generally, you know, somebody in insurance and that's how you get into insurance. It's never like, you know, this is where I want to be. It's just kind of end up there. Um, And I started um, at QBE doing financial reporting. um, And I loved it because I was a finance major. I do love, you know, math, Excel, uh, working with numbers, working with Excel and data. Um, So that job was really awesome. But the thing about that was it wasn't as social as I would like for my personality. Um, And I actually had a lot of friends that were in the underwriting industry um, just just through college and after college. Um, And they were like, Brit, you'd be great at this. You should really give it a chance or look into it. Um, So I ended up interviewing for an underwriting position and I I got one in the lawyer space. um, And that was basically based off of the team rather than the company or the product. And so I kind of just fell into the lawyer's professional liability space. Um, And yes, I've been doing this particular product for about 10 years. Um, and that's kind of how I fell into it. It just was relationship-based essentially.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm curious, um, and this is a little off topic, but since you mentioned your, your dad was really like encouraged you to get a job early on, what was that first job?
0: Um, I was a receptionist at SuperCats. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think he basically like got his haircut at Supercuts and they were like oh job wanted and there my dad was just like can you go interview and so I interviewed to be the receptionist at Supercuts and that was my very first job so I swept up hair took people's names down and sold inventory um, when I was I think I was 14 I, yeah like as soon as I was able to work
1: yeah, yeah so. I mean I think there is definitely something to be said to to like doing like get getting that type of job early on like I I think about it now like I never did like the paper route my brothers did but I'm like they don't have that anymore I mean I don't even know if anyone gets an actual paper maybe my I think my in-laws get an actual paper delivered to their house but like that was like such the gateway into like your first job like you know having to go on the paper route and deliver the papers and like it's just like not happening anymore Mm -hmm. um but I do think you know, it's really important to like that responsibility early on that, you know, absolutely. And having to work for somebody else and, you know, listen to the tasks that someone else other than your parents are telling you to do. Um,
0: Yeah.
1: And not to mention when you get a paycheck, when you're like that young, you think you're like, you could buy anything. Right.
0: It was (laughs) incredible. And I mean, I he's, he's always sort of instilled that in me. And I was, I talked to him yesterday because I wanted to see if I recalled everything correctly. And I also worked in college as well. And I was like, did you like make me work in college? Like, did you encourage me to work in college or did I just do that on my own? And he's like, you just got a job in college. Like, I didn't, I didn't tell you you should or tell you ne- you needed to. So it always, it just kind of like ingrained, like, I'm working, like, this is my life and I'm, I like to work and I want to be a part of something. And it, it just has been something I've been doing since you know yeah.
1: 14 years old yeah and I always liked to have a job and when I was in college and I had the same thing like no one told me I needed to get one but I like to have like it, to me it was like having something else to do other that that was outside of the school itself that gave me mm-hmm. something else to do it gave you kind of connections to other people um and obviously I always wanted to have like cash <laughs> for myself right. to, to fund all my yeah. extracurricular of activities but, yeah. right but, but just to know people outside, because you were such a bubble in college, and just to know some people outside of that bubble, I I liked having that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually worked on campus. I was I worked um, I actually tutored, which surprises me to this day when I when I think about it. But I tutored um, quantitative business analysis is what I tutored. Um, and then I also was the manager of our trading room, so I just basically did like the schedules and stuff for all the other employees that had to just sit in the trading room, the Bloomberg trading room that we had to be there for any questions, um, and things like that. It was honestly a very easy job, uh, but it was a job nonetheless. So, Yeah.
1: Yeah, I did the tutoring too. I, I tutored organic chemistry, which I think is also hilarious. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Right. I'm like, I can't believe I was like imparting knowledge on people around this topic like I, I to I was me Now
1: qualified to do this
0: <laughs> exactly right exactly <laughs> but it was it was nice to you know it was it did help forge other relationships and other experiences outside of yeah. my own little social bubble
1: yes yes um and it just like it, it gives you just something like you have to prioritize your time a little bit better like you can't just like yep. float around be like oh I'll get to the like the studying when I can like you have to actually like kind of schedule it out and prioritize things and mm-hmm. that's like a good life skill that you can translate into Absolutely. real life yeah <laughs> of course um so okay so you know, you got into the underwriting world um to to because you needed more, like, you felt like you needed more socialization. So, or that <laughs> sounds like I'm like socializing
0: you like you're a, a dog or a baby. <laughs> <Like> a <puppy>. <laughs> Right, right. you <laughs> needed some socialization <laughs> in my career. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there was a, there was a number of things. Um, I, like I said, I loved the technical aspect of it. I loved working with data. I worked with a ton of data in my accounting role at QVE. Um, But I looked at the just trajectory of that career path and what that looked like. And I've always been, you know, pretty ambitious and wanting to continue to learn and do things and grow. And there really wasn't a clear path for me in the accounting space. And I was like kind of looking around and I'm like, I don't really want to be doing this when I'm in my 50s. You know, like I, I want a different. I want to be in a leadership position. I want to be a little bit more in a decision-making decision, uh, position. So so that was a piece of it. And then another piece of it was the social aspect of it. I'm just by nature a pretty social person. I do like making relationships, meeting new people. Um, I'm pretty outgoing. It's just in terms of who I am naturally as a person, it just fit better because you do have to make a ton of relationships in underwriting. It's a really relationship-based. Yeah. Position. Um. So that it was it was a mixture of both, and also the ability to kind of seamlessly transfer. Like I had, I was in insurance, and it was scary, right? Like it was QBE was the only job I I knew. Um, I didn't really know what it would be like to work for another company or in a different position, and I essentially changed a career path, right? And that's not a comfortable thing to do when you're in your mid twenties. And you have a steady paycheck, and you've had this, you know, I, you know, this this idea of having a job and being grateful for a job being instilled in you. It's like, well, why am I going to chance this and go to a different, you know, industry or job um, when I have something that's stable and there and, and that I'm good at? Um, so I could circle back to what I was, my, the point I was getting at, but um, it was scary and. Also, I just knew it was the right thing for me to, to expand my knowledge base. Um, And yeah, sorry, I got a little off track there, but, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, so it's, it's the ability to go into the more social aspect of it. And then also it's, it is a position where you're constantly learning and growing and you're constantly being challenged and there's, you know, you're never going to hit a plateau with underwriting, especially with a product like Lawyer's Special Liability, because it, the landscape is changing yeah. continuously, right? And there's just always things that you can learn about.
1: So do you, did you, like, while you're making, like, or going through, like, the the, the mental gymnastics of making these changes like was was your is your father someone like you would like really rely on to bounce like these career ideas off of
0: yeah so it was a struggle because he did not support it he wanted me to stay at QBE Mm -hmm. and that was the biggest decision I made without my father's support at that point in my life which was extremely difficult Um, but I just knew, I knew it. I was like, this is not for me for the rest of my life. This is, I have more growth potential and it's not going to happen here. And I listened to myself and I made that decision. Um, and the thing that's great though, is even though he didn't necessarily support it, it's, he, he really did teach me to do my due diligence, right? Like, what am I getting into, you know, not jumping into something without really figuring out does this work for me? Is this the right position for me? So he kind of really just challenged me rather than didn't support me essentially, but it did feel at the time pretty major to kind of go against what my dad recommends for my career path, being that he he was, he was such a big part of it
1: Mm -hmm.
0: throughout my entire life. So.
1: Has he come around now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. He definitely (laughs) has. Um, and it's it's funny, it, any time that I come to him with any big life or any big decision, I, I, I kind of come prepared. <laughs> like I really do. I'm like, I've thought about this. This is what's going to happen. And I'm just more and it makes me more confident in my decisions, actually. So yeah, it's helped.
1: That that I mean, that's such a valuable Thing to have though, to have like someone push back and not just be like, "That's okay, you know, whatever you want to do." I guess I remember when I decided I I, I was in a career and I decided I, you know, wanted to go to law school. And my my mom was like, "Okay," like she, (laughs) you know, and I probably would have gone even if she had challenged me on it. But she was like, "Okay, whatever you want to do."
0: Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah. I mean, I also kind of have that personality myself, so I did need that in my life. Like, I kind of was like, "All right, yeah, that's fine," or "Okay, yeah, sure, I'll give that a shot." So I did need kind of more structure around that decision-making process. So I'm so grateful for that.
1: Okay. So you make the change though, and you just need to leave QB and then go, move into underwriting at, at Sampo, which is where you are now. But mm-hmm. you had a little bob and weave in between.
0: I did. Um, kind of back to what I was saying earlier in terms of career growth trajectory, wanting to be in a leadership position, wanting to be kind of more a part of um the big picture. So I started endurance it was and then got bought by Sampo. Um and I kind of was like I mean in any kind of job I'm like guns blazing for the first 6 to 8 months. Like I just want to <laughs> be in everything, want to be like invited to everything and want to be immersed in whatever I can around, you know, the industry or what's going on or who can I meet and all that stuff. So the first few months or year of endurance i was a very like i would cancel on my friends last minute all the time just because if, if i got invited to something i'm like i'm going like it was i was everything i said yes to in the first basically probably year if not more of my career um and i absolutely loved it i was just i really was put in such an incredible position in terms of who i was able to train under um It was a really small team, so it being my first underwriting job, essentially, there was only four people, and those, including myself and the three other people, were really well-versed in the lawyer's professional liability world, Um, and the training that I was able to get and the hands-on experience that I I was able to get, I just don't think I would have really gotten anywhere else. Um, And then, you know, the team grew because I started Endurance when we were building the book up it was a small book when I joined and then it was a larger book when I ended up exploring another opportunity. Um, And it was just kind of the same story. I mean, I loved, loved working at Endurance or Sampo and um, it was a very difficult, very, very, very difficult uh, decision that I made to leave, to go to Everest. And essentially the opportunity was to build a book from scratch, ground up, um, be a part of you know, something new and have more autonomy, have more decision making, um, uh, more of a decision making, you know, position. Um, so I ended up going to Everest, and I'm, you know, at the time, it like if I could change one thing about that is I put myself through hell. Like making that decision, I was like in turmoil. Like, did mm-hmm. I make the right? Did I make the right decision? And I, I it was, it was a very uncomfortable time. Um, But ultimately, I'm super happy that I went to Everest. Um, I got to learn a different skill set that I didn't learn at Sampo, um, which would be, you know, looking at smaller law, you know, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what we were looking at at Everest was a small, smaller law segmentation. Um, And then just also being able to get a new experience and working with different people and having different styles. Um, So yeah, so I, I was at Everest for about a year and a half. And then I always kept in touch with Sampo. Um, I I really, you know, loved working at Sampo. So the opportunity, whenever the opportunity arose that I could come back, especially in the position that I'm in now, I was like absolutely. And I was ecstatic and very, very happy about how things have played out so far.
1: Well, and the one thing that, you know, I always feel like even the, even and I'm not saying that it, it was a bad mood for you, but even like bad, like negative moods, you can you can always learn learn something. A hundred percent, yeah. And I always think too about like management styles, you know, because you are probably you know you're in one place and they, there's a certain culture and there's a certain probably like how things are run and management style. And then you if you if you move to a different department in that same company, you might see something different. If you move to an entirely different company, you're going to see it, a whole new, mm-hmm. um, you know environment i should say yeah. so is there anything that you know you pulled out of any of those experiences of certain management styles or um corp- like corporate energy that yeah. you know really were like stood out as a positive to you and then on the converse some that were a negative to you
0: sure um well from just a personal perspective it was absolutely sure. um in terms of like making a decision that might not seem like the right decision at the time um, just kind of having faith for lack of a better word that you're, you know you made a decision now make the best of it right like you're here now let's just move forward and yeah. get what you can from it um and I think that because I left Sampo I had this kind of feeling in, it helped with my confidence, actually, Mm -hmm. it was kind of like, I left something that I was so comfortable in, and I loved so much to be here. And now I want to make the best of it. Mm -hmm. So I think I was way more vocal. And I was way more, um, I participated more in conversations, and I spoke up for, you know, my ideas way more than I think I had at Sampo at Everest. And I think that that muscle I needed to flex. And I don't know if I would have been able to do that at Sampo in the position that I was in, because I had been there for, you know, almost five years, there's a level of comfort that you get. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you have a wealth of resources. So if you don't know something, you can just ask somebody instead of relying on your own knowledge and, you know, like having faith that you do know what you, you do know, what you're talking about, or you do know what the topic of hand is, or you have faith that you can learn it. Um, so that definitely was huge at Everest. Like I, it, it helps with my ability to trust myself and my own knowledge and lean on myself. Um, I think that from a management perspective, it was you know it was just different. I've really, really wanted to be a part of the the bigger picture,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and there was just, a, I, I almost felt like I wasn't moving fast enough and I was getting a little bit frustrated and I wanted to be a part of more. Um, and it wasn't exactly what I had envisioned. So coming to terms with that as well. And, you know, I had, I had certain supporters that made me feel and trust that I was going in the right direction, but there was a lot of pushback. It, it's, it's hard when you when you're known at a certain company and then you leave, you basically have to build your name up again. Like you need yeah. to, you know, show who you are and it's not just known and assumed. So going through that period too was was difficult, you know, proving yourself again. Um which was which was great, you know, but at the time it's frustrating. It's like I yeah. I'm being doubted. Why am I being doubted? I know what I'm doing, but it's it's just the nature of you know, it. they don't know me. They don't know what I'm capable of. They don't understand, you know, my background or knowledge or whatever it is. Yeah.
1: But it also kind of gives you a, an opportunity to not to reinvent yourself, but like, like mm-hmm. how you're, you're so comfortable in another position and you move to a different company. You're like, okay, like I can, I can bring out this side of me a little bit more here because no one knows me really yet. Yep. So you can kind of like create You know who, who how you want to be perceived. It's so hard to change that once you've already been somewhere for a while. So you can, you know, not reinvent yourself, but like choose what you want to highlight of yourself. Yeah,
0: and and I think that that was that whole thing about kind of having being not assertive, but a little bit more assertive and a little bit more just vocal. But that I don't think would have happened, or it would have been. It would have taken me longer if I had stayed and I didn't, you know, make that that jump at the time. Yeah. So,
1: so and I, I think you touched on it too, but so you're at Everest and then you go back to Sampo. So how did, how did that transition happen for you? Was it something like, you were did they say, Hey, we need, like they, did they reach out to you or did something just fall into your lap or?
0: Yeah. So like I said, I would always be in contact with, you know, with Sampo, with my team. Um, and there was, there's always movement in the industry and whenever there was movement, they would reach out and say, are you interested in this position? And I, I'd be like, you know what, this doesn't seem like what I'm interested at this point. And they're like, okay, well, let's just keep in touch. And there was a decent amount of movement within Sampo. And that did open up an opportunity for me to come back in the role that I'm in now. Um, so it was kind of like, a, 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 always. it was a conversation that was always open. The dialogue was always open. I would catch up with everybody, you know, maybe twice a year, but it it was, it was always with with the pandemic, like, how are you? How's everything going? It was like, always like a friendly and caring relationship. So when this new opportunity came up, um, they, you know, they reached out to me again and said, are you interested in this position? And it was like, absolutely. Like, let's go. Like, so excited. So,
1: um, and I, I do feel like there was so much of that happening, you know, in the pandemic, like people, like, I think a lot of people did soul searching. And also I think being able to work wherever, you
0: know, mm-hmm. really opened
1: up a lot of opportunities too that may not have been available. Um, so, you know, I, I think it kind of pushed people to kind of.
0: Yeah, I mean, and bit. also during that time, I made the move to San Francisco. So I did move across the country and moved out of this state that I basically spent my entire life in. So these things are character building essentially, right? And it builds confidence and it kind of instills like, oh, I can do this, I can do these things. And so moving across the country away from all my family and friends, having one friend essentially in San Francisco and building up a social life and building up, you know, a life of my own, you know, in my mid thirties is, is, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world. So I think that just timing-wise too, it, it I was just in a position of I I I I'm having more faith in myself. I I'm believing in myself more, and I know I'm capable of doing harder things. So when the the job presented itself, I I didn't kind of shy away because at the time it could be looked at as a, a kind of a stretch role essentially. Um, being that i I hadn't been in a position of, of that level of managerial level, but at the same time, I knew I could do it. Like I, I didn't have any doubt in my mind that I'd be capable and I'd learn, and I would have support and I'd reach out to people if I had questions, and like I just knew I'd be able to do it. So all of those things combined, I think, made that transition really easy for me. Um, and it was way more exciting than scary, right? Like it was just it just worked out really well.
1: Yeah, and I really hand it to you though too when you you mentioned again like moving to San Francisco and like not even like really knowing anyone there. I can't like that. that That's I mean, good for you. Um, but I just think back to even like the time mid pandemic. It's not even like everyone's weird
0: about being social. I know. I know. I I don't know. I don't really know what I was thinking, but I'm glad I did it. I I was I was I I was living with my parents actually, so I had gotten out of Manhattan and. I was at my parents' house because I was in a junior one bedroom in the East Village in Manhattan. And I knew that I would lose my mind if I stayed there. Yeah. Um. So I was I back with my parents, which was incredible. Like having that time, mm-hmm. I would never think in a million years that I'd be eating dinner with my parents every night at five 30 <laughs> ever again, you know, like it was just really awesome to be able to get that time with my parents. But at that point I had been home for, you know, o- over half of a year and it was kind of like a very low risk move I got a sublet if I wanted to come home I could yeah everyone was remote so it was sort of yes and and I went in very mindfully about it like I might be lonely I might be bored I might miss home and I was very prepared for it I was like this might happen and I'm okay with it and just going in with that like mindset of, of acceptance like okay, like, this might suck, I might hate it, I might not like this, but let me just see, let me see how it goes, and if I really don't like it, I can come home, which is a really wonderful thing that I'm able to have. Yeah, yeah really yeah. grateful for that.
1: And, you know, I, like, I think back to, like, the whole, you know, the time that, you know, everyone, everything shut down, and some of those things that like, you think about so fondly, I think we all got to experience, like, You know, something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Like, you know, me and my my family, I'd like my mom has a place in Florida and I took my kids down to Florida for like a month because I'm like, well, you know what? You can do school down here. I can work down here, but we can go to the beach and the pool and, you know, why not? And the flights are so cheap. So cheap.
0: (laughs) And it really is. it's, It's a truly why not? Like, why not? Like, why am I, especially in New York in the winter? And even more so being in Long Beach, which is just like a suburb. It's on Long Island, but it's, you know, close to the city, but not really. And the winter is like depressing. It's cold. It's gray. There's not much going on. I'm like, why am I going to do this to myself? Like I can work somewhere else. And I actually, I came to San Francisco in February of 2020, um, which helped. So having that experience and really loving the city and just how beautiful it is. And I was like, you know what, let me just do it. And that was, that was the first time that I didn't, I didn't, in in terms of decision making, that was the first decision that I made without consulting a single person. I didn't ask anybody their advice. I didn't ask anybody their opinion. I was very convicted. I was like, I'm doing this and. No one's going to stop me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was the first time that I really didn't like ask anyone essentially for permission. You know, it was really just, I'm going to do this.
1: Yeah. Well, good for you. Yeah,
0: um <laughs> i'm happy about it i'm good. glad i did this
1: <laughs> um so okay so in in your current current role let's talk about that a little bit so how how has sure. your role changed now now that you're from from before you know w- w- what are you doing now
0: because we've kind of passed yeah, over it <laughs> absolutely yeah um so what i'm doing that's different really is i i feel like i actually get to use that technical part of my brain even more than I was before as just like kind of a deaf day-to-day underwriter because now I get to have conversations with senior management and ex and claims and look at like what's working, what's not working and using that, like using data to 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 assess that information and then taking that information and communicating it to the team, communicating to the brokers, informing the firms and our clients about what we're seeing on our end. Um, so that's probably like the, my most favorite part about where I am from a position standpoint, just being a part of those like bigger picture, like, what do we want to be doing differently? How do we want to be looking at things differently perspective? Um, so that's, that's been awesome. Um, and then I also have always, from a managerial perspective, I think anyone on the team could attest that I really care about their professional development, their growth their happiness, um, you know, that they're doing what they want to be doing or they're engaged or they're learning. Um, I'm just, I've always just been passionate about everyone I work with and their happiness and success. Mm -hmm. So I, I just really, the position I'm in now is exactly where I wanted to be when I started this career path.
1: Yeah. Well, and that, that's awesome because that's the like, I mean, you're the type of manager that people probably want to have that someone that actually cares about, not only like the, the, that they push them to do like, you know, a good job, but they care about them as a person mm-hmm. and their growth. Um, yep. cause you're, you're, really, I mean, you're, you're being a mentor, you know, and that's what everyone needs a mentor, you know, whether they're seeking one out or one find, you know, you find someone to mentor, um, yeah.
0: So yeah, and I I mean I and I I got it, you know, from from Stuart Patterson is is he really mentored me and John Mueller he also mentored me, but having that is um was so instrumental in my own growth. And you know, I got pushed to do things that were so out of my comfort zone and it's really important to to have someone to do that for you.
1: Yeah. And to help, yeah, and to push you. I mean, like yeah. that's the thing, like because you can get so comfortable. Um and you kind of, I feel like it really helps to have someone kind of push you outside of that comfort zone. So then you can get better and get more yeah. confident, Absolutely. Um, even though you might mess up a little bit along the
0: way. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. And and that's the thing. It's like putting, putting people in positions where if you mess up, it's okay. You know, it's not going to be super detrimental, but it's going to be good for your growth. Yes. Essentially. Yeah.
1: So, but are you still, you're still though in the professional liability space? Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. what are some, you know, changes or shifts that you're seeing, you know, in the market from, from your vantage point?
0: Well, I think that what I'm what I'm trying to kind of look at things differently, and I, I've been communicating this to, you know, internally and, and to some of our broker partnerships I think that in the market itself, the way that lawyers professional liability was always looked at was from a firm size perspective, like a headcount perspective. And I do think that that's a piece of it, but I think that what the firm is actually doing should have a bigger play on their coverage rather than how many attorneys are at the firm, right? Because it's really what is the risk that's being presented by insuring this firm. And it's not because they have 20 attorneys, it's because they're working on really large, you know, underlying valuation you know, or whatever it may be. And that's where the risk is, right? If one of those goes wrong, that's mm-hmm. what's gonna be the damages essentially. So that's that's a little bit difficult to kind of shift in the market, but we're doing our best to to look at it from that perspective. And I think that it just it just affords a more thoughtful ap- approach to the underwriting process. And, um, so I'm seeing that a little bit more, and then it's also with, you know, the, the remote working, the hybrid working, um, the one thing that we're seeing is, you know, what does that look like from an associate training standpoint? Mm-hmm. How is that going to change? How is that going to develop? Are the associates getting the same amount of training? Probably not. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can go even further and say AI is emerging and what is going to happen with all the bots and yeah. are they, are they going to be taking over associate roles or on the flip side of that is just the information is going to be at the fingertips of all the attorneys. So the training isn't really there because you're not in it. You're not doing it. It's just the information is there. So those are just things we're kind of looking at just to touch on a few of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, what stands out a little bit though about um what you said about like talking about exposure because typically though you see you know cases that are or matters that have the big higher exposure where which you're going to need larger coverage tend to go to be at the larger firms mm-hmm. i mean it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's not always the case but typically those type so then you already ha- like so it's like converse like you have the the numbers are there like a, you have the number yeah uh, more attorneys but they, they they tend to have the higher those absolutely big cases
0: although I think that just transactional values in general are rising mm-hmm. so what we are seeing is that middle market space or even you know you can see a few partners breaking off from a large firm and starting their own. So it could be a ten attorney firm, but they're working on really sophisticated matters. Yeah. Um, and then even that middle market space, like I was saying, they're kind of being, they're acting as large law, but in the market and coverage perspective, they're kind of being priced and the coverage is on maybe the smaller law um, space. So I think that there is a combination of things. I think that the landscape of transactions, like it's getting insane, you know, billions and billions of dollars. You know, from a trust and estate's perspective, you know the generational wealth transfer is higher than it's ever been before so you're seeing a lot of that happening. There's a lot of money that are that's just changing hands um, and I think that's what's kind of changing with the landscape of like from the size perspective from an attorney headcount perspective. yeah
1: um,
0: so we're just trying to hone in on that a little bit more and get clearer on like the underlying valuation
1: um, and you might not have insight on this but I feel like you and I may have talked about it I'm not sure um but one thing I've noticed is some of the like larger firms are letting or kind of letting go of their trust and estates department. yes yeah um which I I think is very interesting because I understand that they might not be um large like income streams but they are often very connected to larger clients yeah so, mm-hmm. I do think it's really interesting to see like that separation occurring?
0: I agree, and I think it's your point. it is a it's a low income stream, but if you think about it, it maybe it shouldn't be really. Yeah. you know, because it's it is a transaction that's happening, you know, with a like a large amount of money or a large estate or whatever it is. but it's just not it's the comparison of the risk that's being taken on versus what's being charged doesn't go hand in hand. So it's kind of like not worth a large law time and then it gets trickled down to, you know, mid-market and then the mid is working on the large estate. It's yeah. just, yeah, it's, it doesn't, it's kind of just all jumbled and it doesn't entirely make a ton of sense.
1: Yeah. Like I always think about it like, oh, like if you, you know, say, you know, you're working directly with some like fortune 50 company and like, you know, their CEO needs, you know, a, a revision or, a, you know, needs to do something with their, their trust. So it's like an automatic like, oh, well, you can get everything you need from, you know, us. And now mm-hmm. they're like, oh no, maybe not that though.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> and, and yeah. And then the other, the other thing is, is you also have to have the attorney's, staffed appropriately for yeah. the trust and estate practice right it's just I, yeah I'm, I'm not that, that's an interesting point and it's I would love to hear more from somebody about why you know from an attorney why they think that might be happening if they're in it you know
1: yeah I'm yeah. not
0: sure so, from where I sit.
1: if they're listening out there let me,
0: yeah absolutely me. <laughs> if they have any just insight just to that, that'd be incredible Um,
1: so one thing that comes up a lot in in my space, um, and I, I hear a lot of, when I have a lot of people come on and talk about like the nuclear verdicts, um, and you know, is that something that in, in your space you, with the professional liability you can account for when you have these billion dollar, you know, you know, nuclear verdicts in you know, say a trucking case or something like that, like, is that, you know, how does that impact your end?
0: Well, um, it impacts it in a way where when it gets to be that large of you know a damage evaluation, it essentially comes down to like almost kind of limit management. It's the, it's the really only thing we can do and where, and where we're deploying the limit. And it, when they're really, really large, it's almost a cat cover. Even no matter where you are. Yeah. So it's it's scary because you don't know when it will happen, and that's why we want to be super, you know, mindful of those very, very large transactions yeah. and how we're deploying limit and at what you know what layer, what position, and what we're charging for it. Um. And that's why you know it's, there are some firms that co-insure and that's Mm -hmm. always helpful to see and at that point it's kind of like that makes sense right if it's that that large of a of a settlement it's it it helps if there's you know a large retention or a large co-insuring policy or something like that because it it basically helps with that like basically cat cover approach
1: yeah 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 um so you know, what, what about, because you, you've talked about how, you, you know, you, you, you love, you know, being in underwriting, but what about it makes you so passionate about it? Like, I know you love the data and you love the, you know, looking at the numbers and, um, but like, I don't know, like, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, more, I'm curious with the, where the, not not to say that there shouldn't be passion, but I'm I'm curious no, about what yeah, your totally. thought process
0: is. I just think it, I think it's really interesting, especially with the products that you know I get to work on from a lawyer's professional liability standpoint, because we're looking at something different with every single firm. You know, you need a you need a law firm for a lot of things in life. And so you get to just get a little bit of an insight into all these different areas of what happens throughout the the world and different transactions and different things that go on. And it's just, it's interesting to learn. You're always learning something new. Um, there's always a different way to look at it. There's always a way to be creative about it. Um, that's probably one of the most fun pieces of it is looking at a firm that you know might have had claims in the past and looking into it and, and figuring out like, are they a better firm today than they were yesterday? And what risk management procedures have they put into place? And from a pricing perspective, does it make sense from a profitability? Like, can we get them to a profitable standpoint? It's like all those little pieces. It's like a little puzzle that you get yeah. to put together. And, you know, working with the brokers, meeting the firms, hearing from them, hearing their story, hearing about what they've been doing on their end and what they do. Um, there's just always something new. And, you know, we go to a number of conferences throughout the year. Um, and they always have like really great content for us to learn more. I mean, again, we're, there, there there's some underwriters that are lawyers, um, but then there's a lot that aren't. So I'm not a lawyer. I, I don't know the law like a lawyer would. So going to these conferences, there's, yeah. there's so much to learn. There's, it's just a really, you know, complex space. And yeah. I think that that's what I really like about it. And I, I and just the underwriting industry in itself is the people are great. The flexibility is great. Yeah. But not, you know, there's always opportunities to learn and grow.
1: Yeah. And, and upward mobility. I mean, yeah. let's face it, that's, that's, <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we always want room, you know, to, to, yeah. so, so, but, you know, when you're looking at like the data points for you know, say a particular law firm or whatever and whatever whatever they may do are there certain like what are the particular challenges that you see or or setbacks to um for that that particular firm to achieve like the the coverage that they need
0: yeah um so i guess a setback it's so it's another interesting thing from where we sit you know we look at risk management every day and we Mm -hmm. look at you know claims that come through and the underlying facts and what happened, what the firm did, didn't do, et cetera. And from where we sit for the most part, a lot of these claims are preventable from very simple procedures, right? Mm -hmm. Like properly document, like documenting stuff, you know, getting conflict waivers, Mm -hmm. getting non-engagement or disengagement letters and actually getting them signed. And from where we sit, it's, Sounds like just document, just, just make sure like, you know, after you have a conversation, write an email, follow up, like just, you know, ask for our conversation, like, this is what we discussed. Just wanted to let you know and confirm. And not to say that that's going to protect from every single claim that's out there, but I do think that it could be a, a big help when it comes to defense, just knowing that things were documented, the conversations were had, the correct, you know, waivers were put into place. Um, a big thing is, you know, non-engagement letters, like letting someone know that you are not representing representing them. Um, yeah. Being super clear on the scope, right, and just saying like this is how we're representing you, and if it changes, like okay, change it. That's fine, but just do everything in writing, really. And I know that that's scary for 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 some firms or people, you know, because it's documented but from our, from where we sit, it just, it helps so much. It really, really does. Um, And then from a coverage standpoint, again, like, I think that the one thing that firms are really afraid of are higher retention, which I, which I get, right? Like we don't want to, from like, even like a healthcare point of view, like personally, you know, going with a high deductible option, you don't want to have to pay so much out of pocket if something were to happen. But at the same time, you know, personally, like I'm relatively healthy, knock on wood, like I'm going to go with a high deductible option. I get lower payments on a, from a monthly perspective. Yeah. I'm saving money on a monthly basis. And if something were to happen, I pay out. And, and that's something that I'm just prepared with, but I'm kind of like banking on myself, if that makes sense, yeah. like uh-huh. taking care of myself, realistically, hopefully not needing to rely on my insurance coverage and therefore, having a higher deductible. So, kind of similar with law firms, right? Like betting on yourself, being more confident that you have the procedures in place, and then saving money on the front end, right? If you don't get, if you if you don't have claims, then you're you're saving money essentially, um, and you're getting a lower premium.
1: So, one thing I, I can't help but think about, and I, and I don't know how often you see this, but I I definitely see it in the news sometimes. Is like the firms that have like that, that rogue attorney that they didn't know mm. about that was maybe, you know, stealing or making deals. And, you know, obviously I know that's not good,
0: <laughs> <laughs> not good, Yeah, not
1: good. but I mean, from like, from your perspective, I mean, what I'm curious to see, like, like, is that something you you see frequently? Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. when I see it, it's like, it, it's in news, it's news. So yeah you don't know of how often that happens, but I've seen mm-hmm. it happen like with people that I know adjacently, you know, and yeah. I'm like, wait, I worked with that person, you know, and that it didn't, maybe didn't happen at work, the place where I worked with them, but it happened at a later, right. you know, like, and it blows your mind. right? Um, but that's- it's
0: definitely scary for sure, right? It's like, because it's like, it's a rogue attorney essentially, yes. you know, it's kind of going on their own. And, and that's why when we look at, you know, firms from a risk management perspective, like, things are going to happen, mistakes are going to be made, like, it's, it's never going to be perfect. But, you know, having really solid intake procedures, right, where you can't work on a matter until you have all these things in place, engagement letters in the system, and then you can open the file, you can work on it, or supervisory methods, right, from, um, accounts receivable really like are we getting paid are we not getting paid what is the firm working on there's just different risk management procedures that can be put into place that can potentially catch uh, you know a rogue attorney but yeah it's it's scary I mean yeah it's definitely a scary thing
1: well I mean the one that I, I comes to mind I saw that the, it was some attorney that was like making settlement negotiations without the authority of a carrier like cl- essentially closing a deal that they didn't have authority for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and like and then and doing it over and over and over again. And then once the and it it was a trusted attorney who you know you probably aren't going to keep close eyes on because they're experienced mm-hmm. and they they have a track record and they know what they're doing. Like you don't think it's not like a new associate situation that you have to like yeah. really watch over them. Like they're probably they have their own client relationships and I just think for, for that from like a not only from a management perspective, but like the, they're like, holy crap, now what's gonna happen with our our, our coverage?
0: Yeah <laughs> and our I mean, premiums. That's, <laughs> right now, like I'm getting anxiety. Thinking, yeah. talking about this. I'm like, oh my God, this is like yeah, I mean it's it, it happens and it's scary. And you're right. Like, I mean, if it's a trusted, well known attorney and it's kind of assumes like they're doing the right thing it's just the firm. And I know that no one really, you know, like even two-factor authentication, right? Like something like that. We never had to do that before. We have to do it now. And when it first happened, everybody was like groaning about it. It's like, oh my God, I have to do this. Now I have to do that. And, but now we do it, it because this yeah. is just what we're doing. Yeah. So while it seems like there's certain things that would, you know, slow down the process or cause bottlenecks, and you don't really want there to be like red tape or more steps that you have to do to do something. Essentially, you need those controls in place to prevent that rogue attorney, whatever that may yeah. be, right? From, a, from just like a managerial firm perspective. Because um, yeah. what else right. are you gonna do about it, right? right? Like there's nothing else that you can do
1: right.
0: to prevent right. it if you don't have controls in place to, to stop it before. Happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like well, the same reason. Like we have, like, if a settlement check goes out, like you, you, an attorney has to be in the office to make sure the correct settlement check is going, yeah. because you like, I mean, that's a headache to to mess to mix to fix later. Yeah, it so, yeah. is well, definitely yeah. something like something you need a like, check and balance that you can that need to have in place. But, um, but I definitely could see how it can easily happen, not easily happen, but could go yeah. unnoticed. Because like, yeah. you like I, I sit here in this position, I'm a professional. Like why I don't I shouldn't have to have, you know, someone watching over me, but somebody else might need that because you know they're that rogue attorney and you just don't know.
0: So you it's fun so just to have yeah. a check. A yeah, check absolutely. On. I mean it, it's it's so true. And I do think that just from this knowledge, right? Like I think that one of the biggest risk management tools are like lessons learned. Really, and hearing about a story that happened at another firm, or it happening to the firm itself, and opening their eyes to what actually can happen and what the consequences are if something like that is to happen. Um, I mean, even the settlement thing. There's so many things that can go wrong from a settlement perspective. I'm sure you know the social engineering, where someone calls and changes the settlement instructions, um, and it gets sent somewhere else uh, and not to the client or whoever should have gotten it, and I was talking to someone about this like two weeks ago, and people are starting to include the settlement instructions in the actual settlement document and not separate. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just little things that you can do to kind of help and prevent these things happening. And it's figuring out what the process or procedure needs needs to look look like in the most efficient way. Yeah. You know, and you don't want to make people do something for no reason. And I think that also providing the why and those risk management lessons learned yeah. could be that why. And like, this is why we have to do this. And it makes more sense and it can resonate a little bit differently. Um, there's a reason behind it, but it is definitely something that is right now.
1: So, and what, you know, what do you wish that, you know, some attorneys or law firms like understood better about the underwriting process that would like make your like your job or or your department's job easier
0: um i mean like i said before you know really simple things go a long way another thing is is you know at least from how we analyze and this is general um if a firm does have a claim or is reporting claims, like not to be afraid to report claims. I know that there are some firms that, you know, if a, if an attorney makes a mistake, they they don't they don't want to tell the GC or they don't want to tell whoever that this happened, right? And it just kind of snowballs into a bigger issue than it would have been if it was just reported exactly what had happened and you could have gotten in front of it. So just being more comfortable with saying, hey, I messed up, this could potentially be a claim and getting the, you know, the you know managing partner the GC's office whoever and the insurance company involved depending on the size as early as you possibly can um to kind of limit those damages so just not being afraid of of being vocal about that and um which it's a
1: funny it's funny I think it's funny in my mind be like wait like all the time like from my position we're always telling like clients or insureds like hey like if you get notice of a claim, don't sit on it, like give it, you know, send it to us. Or if like something happens, you know, and it's serious, call us. Like we'll get out we'll be on the like feet on the ground. And then the the, the same people, like attorneys in the same way, are like, oh wait, something happened over here. Like we don't want anyone to know. <laughs> like, right. Like, yeah. We're not following it's... our own advice. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. And that's the thing, right? Like it's it's easier said than done, like most things, right? But it's but it does help and getting in front of it and not sitting on it. And because you can get into some, you can get into timely reporting issues with coverage. And you don't want to do that. You know, if there's if there's knowledge of the claim and you don't report it and you change policies, like that can potentially not have coverage, right? Like you don't want to get into a situation like that. So just, you know, I think that it, it's been really interesting when I meet with firms that have a, an office of G of a GC general counsel. Um they do make it a point to say like, our attorneys know they can come to us and they do come to us. So the fact that that's even being brought up and a point that's driven home means that it doesn't happen at other shops, right? So just, I mean, and I can go both ways, right? Like I think that firms have to be more lenient essentially like, and make attorneys feel comfortable to say this happened and not feel like there's going to be like immediate repercussions. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um.
0: So I, both yeah. ways with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, some of it I think goes down to the, like the, like, well, if I pretend it didn't happen, maybe it didn't. <laughs>
0: right. Right. Which it's is not like, good. Oh, not, not advisable. Right. No, not advisable. <laughs> Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Yeah. Absolutely not.
1: That, that is not the point. <laughs> the point <laughs> I mean, is to do the opposite. <laughs> exactly. Like,
0: let's get ahead of it. Let's figure out what we can do. If it's an issue, it's an issue, but let's just work through it and see what happens because the longer it waits the, the bigger of an issue it will essentially be right yes so, yeah it'll grow it's just it like will grow
1: you, you ignore that thing for long enough and you don't go to the doctor sometimes it doesn't exactly. resolve itself
0: <laughs> right right exactly you gotta go get it checked out as hard as that is but yeah I know um mm-hmm.
1: Well, we're, we're just about out of time, but I I didn't want to close up without, you know, I I like to close most of my podcasts asking my guests this, so, you know, looking back at, you know, what you know now from going through your, your career and, you know, and everything you've learned along the way, um, what advice would you give to your younger self?
0: Um, I would keep on being yourself. Like that's the most important, Mm -hmm. be yourself, be true to who you are. And the people that respect and care about you will see that, and it just goes a long way. Like I, I think that that's the thing that um when I first started underwriting, I was like, oh my goodness, like there's so many people. I'm meeting all these people. How are they perceiving me, right? Mm-hmm. And I did get advice from one of my friends slash coworkers, and he's like, just be yourself. It doesn't matter. Like it's all going to work out. And it, that was it's, I needed to hear that. So I think that I'm um, hearing that earlier on in my career would have been really helpful um yes. just to reinforce that to yourself be kind you know and be genuine be genuine kind yeah. true to yourself
1: I think that's like such good advice I, I think back to like when early in my career when I would do the constant comparison with mm-hmm. myself and others and yeah like, well, well why 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 is she getting that case well what, what do I like and it was and it wasn't like it was more putting myself down versus, yeah. like, you know, yeah. trying to be something different that I'm like, you know, and, um, I and wish it's I like could th- do it differently. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's kind of like, that's their style and that's fine, but you don't yeah. have to do it that way. And no one, no one has a blueprint. Nobody knows what they're doing essentially. Right. And that's another thing that I'd probably say. It's like, no one really knows what they're doing. <laughs> Everyone has their own style of things and you can have your own style of things. And if it doesn't match what someone else is doing, that doesn't mean it's wrong. Right.
1: Yeah. You know? it's it's hard even as like a parent that's hard too because then you're always like what's going on at their house like yeah
0: but we have no one knows what we're doing no one knows and right and that's the thing and so you got to just stick to what you know and what feels good for you and what feels right for you and and that's really it and not doubt that yeah yeah Yeah.
1: I think that's that's great advice and a great way to lead your team
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I try my best yeah
1: well Brittany, I appreciate so much you coming, coming on and see, I told you, was it that bad? It, no, it was <laughs> so much fun. Yes. That was
0: awesome. <laughs> the, thank the hour you so went by really you. fast. It did. It really did. Uh, yeah.
1: and as always for everyone listening, uh, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the defense never Rest on Apple podcasts. And you can also find us at YouTube at TDNR podcast. And thank you so much for tuning in.